The end of the year is a time of reflection. What went well? What do I want to improve for next year? It's with that spirit that I've invited my guests to share their perspective on Canada's economy, our areas for improvement and our strengths. I'm Michael Bassett, and you're listening to Economics Matters, a Conference Board of Canada podcast. My guests this episode are Linda Nazareth, whose podcast Work in the Future has over 100 episodes exploring diverse topics related to work and workers. She's also the author of Working It Out, Getting Ready for the Redesigned World of Work. In addition, I'm joined this episode by the Conference Board of Canada's Chief Economist, Pedro Antunis. Linda and Pedro, welcome to Economics Matters. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Linda, you wrote earlier this year about the next industrial revolution. You called it the fifth industrial revolution, where humans and machines are working alongside each other. In your article, you highlighted that other parts of the world, including Europe and Japan, have developed policies that they hope are going to help them thrive in this new world of work. But you highlight that Canada is falling behind. Why do you think that is? Let's talk about what Industry 5.0 is, or the fifth industrial revolution, about using technology to get the society you want. In Japan, they call it Industry 5.0. For example, there, it's about using robots, perhaps, to work in seniors' homes because they need labor to deal with the aging population. In other parts of the world, they sometimes talk about Industry 5.0 being about getting the environmental goals they want. I don't know that Canada's behind because of any specific factor. I think we just haven't realized that we are moving beyond Industry 4.0 and maybe into something more positive. I hope there'll be a lot more discussion about it and say, what do we want from this next phase of industrialization or the next industrial revolution? Pedro, when you think about how Canada's performing, what are the areas of the economy that raise some concerns for you? There's a lot of negative news out there and a lot of concern about how Canada is performing in general. But let me start with a little bit of positive. Over the last couple of years, the effects of the pandemic and the massive take-up in tech adoption, we've been very resilient getting through that period of distress. We're still going through the ups and downs of readjusting post-pandemic to our labor market, our new way of working, some of this technology that's still affecting a lot of businesses and the post-pandemic effects that we're still getting through in those hiccups. There's potential here to do better going forward in terms of our productivity. Even prior to the pandemic, we've seen a really big surge in knowledge sector jobs. These are professional, scientific, technical services jobs. Our economy continues to transition to one that is more knowledge-based and it's more human capital that is driving our economic growth in the future. We're doing fairly well on that front. Having talked about the positives, the negatives are also very clear. When we look at our productivity performance, how much each hour that we work, how much income that is generating, we've been falling behind for 20 years at the very least with the U.S., with European countries. The biggest challenge there really is around not just innovation and the productivity-enhancing pieces that we typically think about, but it's simply a question of productive capital per worker. So it's our investment that is lagging behind the rest of the world. We're well below where the U.S. is in terms of our investment as a share of GDP, well below European nations. That dichotomy in the economy where our traditional sectors are falling behind, like manufacturing, you know, our resource sector, I think we're not seeing the kinds of investments we saw in the past. But on the other hand, 
on the knowledge side of the economy, I think there's some positives there to be looked at. What I find really interesting right now is everything is on the table. At one point, we had a very structured view of work that's changed in recent years, even before the pandemic. But I think once we had this great experiment around remote work, we opened up some doors. So we're talking about hybrid, we're talking about remote, we're talking maybe about more gig work. Even the idea of gig work is really interesting. The idea that maybe you don't have one job, you have lots of jobs, you try different things over your life cycle. You sometimes get paid really well for them. Now, I know people think that's a rosy way to look at it, and gig work is often the dark side of this. It's being an Uber driver when you don't want to be an Uber driver. But even the fact that you can pick up work in different ways quickly is an improvement, that it's not all or nothing. We do have some opportunities there. You can reach a much wider audience now, say, if you're selling something or if you're looking for work. Now we just have to harness it the way we want to. There's a human side to all of this too, for sure. We are talking about a world that's changing really quickly, where people may be scared of the tech, where there's real reasons to think it is changing in a way that will leave some people behind and we're going to need policy to help them. But still, I think the fact that we have technology that is potentially going to improve productivity can only be seen as a positive thing. Linda, your work looks at some of the organizational features and the future of work and how that's affecting leaders, how it's affecting employees and individuals. And you highlighted in your last response that there are some areas where Canadians or Canadian businesses are needing to move further towards the future in terms of embracing new technologies, new opportunities. What do you think it's going to take for Canadians or Canadian businesses who get more on board with some of these new ways of working? And what are the factors that you think are holding us back? What did it take to get us to try remote work? It took a full shutdown in the pandemic. Sometimes it takes a lot before we really try things out. I think there has to be a motive, maybe a profit motive, and the idea that to be competitive, we need to make different investments, we need to try different things. Maybe it needs to be a mindset change, and that comes through time and understanding and knowledge and the rest of it. But I get a little frustrated at the speed of change sometimes. Well, hopefully it doesn't take a whole pandemic for us to make another <laughs> workplace change. Pedro, what are your thoughts on what it's going to take to move Canadian businesses and Canadians further into this new world? We do ask some questions to business leaders in some of the surveys that we pull out. I was just talking about the biggest challenge, which is that drive to invest. There's a lot of reasons we're seeing a lagging performance there, including some of the challenges that we're facing now with the very tight labor markets, the availability of workers for businesses. There's questions around whether Canada is a good place to invest if we're going to have the workforce that we need to charge forward with our production. These are the other big challenges in terms of capital costs. We keep hearing about that. We keep hearing about the difficulty in project assessment, how long it takes, the review process at all levels of government that we have in this country, and not to mention the tax challenge. We were competitive on taxes up until the tax cuts that President Trump put in in 2017 even. Then all of a sudden we saw this being a challenge again. There's also the innovation piece. I don't know what the factors are that would necessarily motivate more innovation, but certainly we've done some homework looking at what's keeping us behind. And one of those things, for example, is access to venture capital, which has been very important. The other piece is incentivizing business to do more R&D. We have a lot of government-funded R&D in this country. In comparison to other jurisdictions, we do well. 
But on the business end of R&D, we are very poor in comparison to other countries. Linda, you opened up this conversation talking about an industrial policy and how places like Europe and Japan had deliberately tried to change the way that their businesses were interacting with this new future. And Pedro, it does seem that there is this maybe an appetite for governments to try to get involved and accelerate certain transitions or to address specific problems. So think about climate change and everything that's going in there. And this resurgence of an industrial policy strategy to try to achieve certain government target through incentives and through spending. From an economic perspective, what questions does that raise for you? Have we learned any lessons from the past? What I was just talking about essentially was trying to set a level playing field and allowing business to decide what and where they want to invest. What we're seeing coming out currently is really a reversion to industrial policy that we haven't seen, I think, since 1970s. I worry a little bit about that. Governments, for the most part, have trouble picking the winners. We've had success in some cases, in some provinces, but we've also seen terrible failures in terms of picking where we want to see investments happening. So I do worry about this. Certainly when we think about the battery plants, we're already hearing about issues with respect to the labor force. We are strained for trades workers, and we're already seeing challenges about constructing these mega investments, just huge billion-dollar plants that we're seeing coming up very, very quickly, not to mention the labor force that we're going to need to fill those jobs once we enter production phase. When I keep hearing about we need more manufacturing jobs, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the truth. The labor market is very tight, and maybe we should think twice about investing in some of these Now, the other argument on this industrial policy is that we get into that green supply chain. We have free trade agreements with the U.S. and with Europe and with many other countries. There's nothing that prevents us if we have the comparative advantage in, for example, critical minerals and other supply chain factors that if those batteries are being built in the U.S. that we can't get into that supply chain. I do worry about some of this uh, very focused investment, especially in the sense that our batteries really the solution. And, you know, that's also arguably a question that many are pondering these days. Can I add to that, too? In terms of governments picking winners, yeah, I agree. This is a problem. You know, governments look at things one way, and it's not always a way that really matches with how the economy is moving. The example of jobs is just a great one. When a politician wants to talk about creating jobs, they want to talk about a factory moving into a geographical area and how many jobs are going to be created, full-time jobs. And then they want to take a picture at the factory and say, look, this is what we've done. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's only one approach. These days, creating a job for someone in a small town might be a job that's in a different province, even a different country. Or that person might start a business in a small town and have the whole world as their potential market. And that's not something you can take a picture of all that easily. You can maybe change policy to make it easier to work from some places. But it's not the old style that we've gotten used to. So it does mean you need some rethinking around this. Gig economy is part of this. It's not necessarily the one job for the long period of time that we're used to. Our policies aren't really geared for this. A lot of them were created in the post-war years. 50, 60 years ago, they seemed like they were appropriate. Now they're not. You know, the gig economy is a really good example of that. It's kind of got a lot of people thinking that Anything that's not a full-time permanent job is bad, and we have to have legislation to turn things around. And that's not always the case. 
I'll use an example of this. California tried to put in gig economy laws a few years ago. The idea was that you had to pay benefits and you had to employ people a certain number of hours. You couldn't just have casual workers. One of the first groups that got hit by that was Santa Clauses. Because at Christmas, you hire Santa Clauses for a few hours at the mall. You're not hiring them all year. You're not giving them benefits. And it became harder to do that. Some of them felt they weren't getting as many hours as they would have because the malls were reticent about hiring them. You have to be careful and think about the people in the groups that will get hurt when you try and create a reality that really isn't there anymore. Yeah, the niche would certainly go away for a Santa Claus that was there all year round. If you look at some of the data from StatsCan, they will tell you that often what gig work is doing is supplementing incomes for people that are employed elsewhere. For example, a construction worker that's been put on hold because of rain, for example, will take on Uber driving for a week while he's not busy on his site. These are very flexible areas where people have been able to contribute to the workforce without necessarily all of the, how should I say, the nuance or the legalities of a full-time role in employment. When we think about that knowledge economy piece, there's a very different, and Linda pointed some of this out, there's possibly very big changes coming in in terms of productivity gains with AI in, in some of these areas where we've been doing very well. We need to be flexible. We need to look at what's happening in terms of adoption of technology and the evolution of the workforce and be able to respond to that in a quick way. I love the photo op analogy. I think that's really what's happening here. This is very political. We want to have some wins in comparison to what's going on in the U.S. This is a photo op opportunity for provincial premiers and for the federal government as well. Peter, do you see things like friendshoring and those kinds of industrial policies that seem to be related to international relations in the same bucket as these other ones that are around achieving certain commitments on the climate side? Are they the same thing? Should people be looking at these industrial policies as the same, or are there significant differences between ones that are more geopolitical and others that are more innovation-driven? Federal representatives could argue that the battery plants are a win because of the geopolitics, because we don't want, and we've in fact seen that highlighted in a chapter of the budget, saying that we want to move away from trade with China. And of course, China has become the battery leader of the world. So, yeah, I mean, you could argue that this is a win to kind of move production closer to home, part of that friendshoring agenda. Friendshoring, we keep using that term, it essentially implies that we want to move production to, no matter if there's additional costs, less efficiency, more challenges for businesses, we want to move friendshoring to nations that are not run by countries that we don't like. And so there's two issues with that is which countries are exactly that we don't like. And the other issue, of course, is that we've been managing trade through a rules-based WTO or a free trade agreement. You can't just say, let's move trade away from this country or that country. You have to kind of have the motivators in play. I think a lot of the French-oring discussion hasn't really moved supply chains at all. And perhaps this is one of the ways that we're going to move that agenda a little bit, although I do think it's a very costly way to move that agenda, if that's the case. Linda, what about you? When you think about how a business leader or a person navigating their business has to contend with all of these policies? You know, these are the traditional tools that we've used for policy. We talk about taxes, subsidies, making it easier to do business, and, and those are all valid things to do. The problem is that sometimes things move really quickly in the world and businesses 
don't necessarily want the policies that are in place or that they have to frame things differently to get the most out of what's offered by governments. I don't think that's ideal. I think in the world we have, we have to change things up really quickly. We have to rethink policies on an ongoing basis. And we have to think what's right for the long term and the short term, because it's really hard to set long term policy in a world where one year and another year has perhaps a whole different technological setup. I get that it's a challenge, but I think we need to reframe our thinking too to meet it. Pedro, what do you see coming this next year? Well, Michael, as you know, we're not calling for a very good year in terms of the economic performance. I would agree with Linda that we're hopeful that we don't see a massive hit to labor markets, that we are as successful at landing this soft landing scenario where interest rates come up, but we see inflation continuing to come down. And by the end of next year and perhaps into 2025, we start to see interest rates coming back down again to help the economy rebound in that year. But 2024, I think, is already shaping up to be a tough year. We have seen some slackening in in labor markets, at least easing labor markets, not as tight as they were. So the signs are there that things are softening. A lot of the job creation has been because of very strong population growth. That masks the impact that interest rates are having on a per-household basis. We have more households driving demand, but on a per-household basis, things are tougher than they at first appear. The real challenge into 2024 is going to be for the small business sector, for the business sector in general. Uh, We've seen corporate profits really plummet in the last 18 months. We're seeing the pressure from wages, the pressure from supply chains, the pressure from more higher capital costs. All of these things, we think about households first, but where we're seeing the pinch really hitting right now is on the business side. I guess the point is the soft landing scenario, the successful inflation scenario is the outlook that we feel is the most probable. But I do think there are risks around a steeper decline led by kind of businesses falling out and having to shed employees. I think businesses for now are hanging on to their workers. Not to leave it on a too negative a piece, but yeah, I think there's some real concerns yet and we'll keep our ear to the ground on this one. Thank you so much both for taking the time to help us to understand some of the challenges, the big developments that we've seen this last year as well as thinking about where we're going as a country going forward. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Economics Matters is a Conference Board of Canada podcast. You can check out more economic outlooks and analysis at conferenceboard.ca. If you like what you hear, leave us a comment or rating on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing.